From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in today to Open Line. Father John Trujillo is in the house. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're going to be emptying out the old mailbag, so we won't be taking your phone calls, but if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, we'd love to take your email. Just send it to openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, and Father John Trujillo, uh, as every Monday, is our host. Father, how are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. How are you doing? I'm terrific. You know, I just wanted to take a minute here at the top of the program. Uh, One of the reasons we're doing a mailbag program today is that we are closed here at EWTN in celebration of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, birthday, I guess, is the... The official celebration yes. moved to it's the nearest Monday. And uh, it makes me Looney Tunes when we never, ever, in the secular media or anywhere that I'm aware of, it's always Dr. Martin Luther King. The Reverend is never included anymore. And while he certainly was a, a force that is unequaled when it comes to civil rights in this country, all of his good works mm-hmm. were motivated by his Christian faith, and that just gets lost in the shuffle, don't you think? Oh, I, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, it's just like all the abolitionists uh, during the before the Civil War. Uh, it was their religion, their Christian faith, that motivated them to oppose slavery. And uh, Reverend um, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, it was his Christian faith, uh, him being a, a minister of the gospel. Um, you know, that, that prompted him and sustained him in the civil rights struggle. And, you know, that, that gets kind of tossed off to the side. And uh, yes, he did a lot of great work uh, for uh, working for civil rights. But, you know, civil rights come from the fact that we're made in the image and likeness of God. Uh, these inalienable rights that we have that's guaranteed in our Constitution is because we're made by our creator. And this is being you know, gradually chipped away bit by bit. So I'm glad that you mentioned and remind us, you know, that that he was a, a minister of his in his own Christian faith. We've got an email here from Anne to kick things off today. She wants to know, did Christ raise himself from the dead or was he raised from the dead by the Father? Very good question, because when I was in the seminary, we were told by our uh, theology professor that uh, Jesus was raised... Uh, meaning that he could not have done it by himself. Now, St. Paul does use that, um, that uh, those phrases that uh, he was raised, but his human nature was raised. Uh, he rose because he is a divine person. Um, this is very, very, very clear, you know, in the Council of Nicaea, uh, the Council of Ephesus, the Council of Chalcedon. It's made clear in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, Pope Paul VI and the Cradle of the People of God, uh, it makes it very clear that Jesus, uh, being uh, God, he's the second person of the Divine Trinity, had the power, and he's able to rise from the dead, but his human nature, okay, uh, which is uh, hypostatic united to his divine nature, his human nature is what was raised 
from the dead. And because you can't separate the father from the son, they're distinct but not separate, there's no problem with saying that the father raised Jesus from the dead because Jesus had a human nature. But also, it'd be it's correct for us to say that Jesus rose from the dead. So whether it's a passive or active verb uh, depends on, on, on the perspective that you're using. Again, we're not taking your phone calls today. It's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Jennifer writes in, My brother thinks that babies with genetic abnormalities, like Down syndrome, are not humans, so they can be aborted. How can I respond to him? Oh, I mean, that's... I, I mean, I with find less that violence than myself. I would, Jennifer. <laughs> yeah, yes. uh, it just, I mean, I had a brother who had muscular dystrophy. Uh, I've had relatives and friends who had children who had Down syndrome. I had a parishioner who adopted two uh, children who had Down syndrome. Uh, wonderful, beautiful people. And uh, I mean, certainly you can see that they're human. Their DNA is human. And uh, to say that, they're, first of all, that they're not human is scientifically wrong because what are they, vegetables? What are they, animals? No, they're human beings. Now, they have some uh, birth defect that doesn't change their human nature. And secondly, uh, you know, to say that that entitles them to be killed, uh, that's what the Nazis said. That's what the Germans, uh, German Nazis said um, under Hitler and his henchmen, uh, you know, during World War, World War II just prior to it. Uh, that was what was maintained in the Soviet Union under communism. Uh, the, the Chinese communists, you know, you know use this uh, interpretation too, that, you know, the, the state can decide if you're useful, uh, if you're useful to the state, and if not, they can kill you after birth or before birth. Um, now, you know, I, I, I presume that your brother isn't thinking the full uh, ramifications of his or of his philosophy, but uh, you know, showed him like who did de who decides you know what is valuable human life. Um, human life is determined the fact that this is a human being; it cannot be anything else. Uh, those uh, embryos that are in the mother, even if they have uh, something like Down syndrome or cerebral palsy or muscular dystrophy, like my brother or some other severe uh, medical uh, issues. That's clear. Uh, and the fact that, you know, you have an immortal soul, whether or not you're, you're viable in the sense of from the state standpoint is irrelevant. You know, if it's a human life, it's a human life. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Jules' email reads, why is it that Christ himself was not baptized as an infant? Well, first, there was no sacrament of baptism uh, at the time. Jesus established the sacrament when he was baptized at the River Jordan. Uh, John the Baptist baptisms that were being done at the Jordan were not sacraments. And secondly, Jesus didn't need to be baptized because uh, the purpose of baptism is to wash away original sin. Well, he had no original sin, um, and he is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. Uh, he is uh, grace itself. So... Not only did he not need baptism, he couldn't be baptized. You, you, God cannot increase his grace. He's the fullness of grace. He is grace. So, you know, Jesus could not be baptized. He didn't need to be baptized. 
Andy would like to know, how were people able to see Christ transfigured? Well, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, uh, it's, it's the same as when we see an apparition, uh, whether it's the Virgin Mary or of Jesus. Uh, we're not seeing something physically. There are the, the sense of sight uh, is being uh, affected in such a way that we, 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 we detect something's there. But whether or not there's uh, uh, the physical transformation, okay, uh, when uh, Peter, James, and John were there uh, at Mount Tabor, uh, what they saw, their eyeballs perceived something. Uh, but if someone had a camera there, I don't think they it, it would have picked up anything. And that doesn't mean it didn't happen. It's just like if I have a regular camera, I, I can't see infrared or ultraviolet rays unless I have a special camera. My normal camera only detects the, the visible spectrum of light, and yet those other things are still there. Uh, likewise, uh, those who were at the transfiguration, they saw something happen, and something did happen, but anybody else or anything that was there would not have been able to perceive or detect it. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not taking any phone calls today. Mike says, there are body parts of saints that are venerated in the Catholic Church. How are relics made, and why do we separate parts of the body? <laughs> uh, well, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> um, I just saw, for instance, the arm of St. Jude. It was on uh, on tour, uh, going across the whole United States, and it came to my diocese of Harrisburg, Holy Name of Jesus Parish. I took seminarians up there to see it from our Legion of Mary, and... Uh, the reason why you can separate the once a person's been declared a saint, then the, the, the parts of their body that have been left over can be used for veneration. Um, up until that point, they don't want people being dug up and chopped up uh, because they, they haven't been declared a saint yet. And once a person's a saint, then uh, those remains of theirs uh, are meant as reminders and can be occasions of actual grace. Um, now, I know some people who, you know, find that um, ghoulish or macabre, um, you know, being Italian, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a church in, in Rome where, uh, you know, it's made, uh, the, the basement chapel is made of bones from the, the Franciscan Capuchins who were buried there. Um, so the remains are not meant to be of any way scary, but it's to reverence the person's life. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday, a very special mailbag edition on Open Line with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You know, for over 40 years, EWTN has been praying with and for people throughout the world. And today we want to pray for anything that weighs on your heart, such as family members, health, finances, anything that's bothering you or troubling you. It's our honor to pray for you. Just take a moment now and send us your prayer request at EWTN.com slash prayer. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Uh, Joe... Joe wants to know, how does mortal sin work? Is it a mortal sin if a person <laughs> is coerced? Oh, excellent question. 
Um, if a person is coerced, and we and we use the the moral distinction of the word force, um, if somebody's forced to do something, it can diminish their culpability uh, to the point where it may not even be existent. Uh, for instance, if somebody is under uh, the influence of drugs and alcohol, it can be of such an extent and severity that they're not responsible for what they've done, but they were responsible for getting dr drunk or high. Uh, so for instance, you know, I had a brother who was killed by a drunk driver. Um, nobody gets drunk with the intent of killing, but when you're sober, you need to realize that that's a possibility. And so you're culpable uh, for the fact that you're, you are planning to be irresponsible in your consumption of alcohol and how you're going to get home. You know, are you, did you make plans to have a designated driver or not? Someone can be under the, 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 the uh, effect of force in terms of great emotional stress. Uh, that doesn't give them a free pass, though. So things that people do, if they murder, uh, if they steal, uh, if they do any type of violence, break any commandment, uh, they can't use this as uh, a get-out-of-jail-free card, but their culpability can be uh, reduced uh, to a point where maybe it's not a mortal sin in this particular case for them uh, subjectively. Maybe it's a venial sin, but uh, that's something they need to discuss when they go to confession because certainly grave matter is part of being a mortal sin. Uh, there's things which are intrinsically always evil in and of themselves. But you also have full consent of the will and sufficient knowledge. That full consent of the will is where uh, the force comes in, because uh, if someone's not holding my hand and making my finger pull the trigger, okay, that would be a case where I didn't do it. They're they're literally forcing me uh, by, by pushing my finger. Now, if someone says, you kill this guy, otherwise I'm going to kill your family, I can't do that, all right? The ends does justify the means. Now, under if I'm under this enormous stress, I may be tempted to think about it, and if, God forbid, I do it, uh, you know, uh, my culpability is going to be slightly reduced because I was I just didn't wake up objectively one day and say, I don't like this guy. I want to whack him. OK, but, you know, as we looked at an individual case, so force can uh, diminish. And in some cases, it completely eradicate the culpability. But it's something that has to be looked at at a case by case application because we don't want people thinking there's a way around uh, committing mortal sin as long as I could say, well, uh, like Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. I got to be honest, when we launched out on this mailbag edition of Open Line Monday, I didn't think I would hear a Sicilian priest talk about pulling his finger and whacking people. <laughs> got, got an email here from Roy. He says, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, what does it mean when it says that we can only pray to the Father through Jesus? Well, what it means is that the Trinity is who God is. And the three persons relate to each other. And so uh, it's not that, it, it, that God the Father, uh, you can't go directly to him in the sense that, oh, uh, that he's unreachable. That's not what we're saying. Is that that's the purpose of the Son. The Son is the mediator between God and man. And yet the, the Son is, uh, you know, intimately united with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So in one sense, when you pray to one person, you're praying to all three persons. Uh, we call it um, appropriation, that what one person is ascribed, all three are participating. So we say the Father created, 
but all three persons were there at creation. The Son redeemed us on Good Friday, but all three persons are present. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, uh, but all three persons uh, were present. So it's for our our, our um, limited, minute uh, uh, minds that we have to use this appropriation and assign certain things uh, to each person. But when we look at it, uh, that that is the, the Son's purpose of revelation. No one's seen the Father but the Son and anyone to whom the Son reveals him. So this is why God the Son came to us, was to show us that he is the way and the only way to the Father, because that's the way God wants it. Not because he has to, that's the way he wants it. You know, as an adult convert, a big turning point for me on my journey into the church was I sort of had a shift in thinking, and I, I moved from from asking myself, where is Catholic teaching X, Y, or Z in the Bible, and shifted to thinking, does Catholic teaching X, Y, or Z contradict the Bible? And I think of that as I read Christie's question here. She says, I don't find enough, uh, enough biblical evidence for papal infallibility. Are there some verses that I'm missing? Well, all we need to do is look at what uh, Jesus said to St. Peter, okay, in Matthew's Gospel, uh, when he said, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Uh, I, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you declare bound on earth is bound in, 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 in earth, and whatever you declare loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. That whatever is inclusive. He gave the, the, the symbol of the keys is so powerful. We don't get it today because most of us have a fob, all right? Doesn't look like a key. You, you know, you push your, as long as it's in your pocket, you push the car button, it turns on. I'm old enough to remember when you actually had to put the key into the ignition. Uh, the key opened the door of your house. Um, in ancient times, uh, the chancellor or prime minister was given two keys by the king. One was the key to the treasury where the taxes would be collected and kept and where the troops would be paid. And the other key would be the key to the prison where the king's enemies would be locked up and when he was merciful, be released. Those two keys symbolize the authority given to Peter and his successors, uh, both ecclesial temporal authority and ecclesial celestial authority. So whatever the, the Pope declares in terms of faith and morals, universal teaching that he intends to be applicable to around the world at all times, he has the power and authority to do that. Uh, that was given to him by Christ. Now, if anybody has a problem with that, they got to take it up with Christ because uh, he gave that to, to Peter. And at no point did the other apostles say to Jesus, well, what about us? Uh, it's his church. And he said, you are Peter upon this rock. I will build my church. Jesus built the church, the Catholic church. He built it on the rock of Peter, but it's his church and he built it. And it's his authority that, that is given uh, to the Pope. And that's why the Pope is called the Vicar of Christ. The Pope is not Christ himself. He's the Vicar of Christ. And he represents Jesus in those particular moments uh, when he exercises his full authority. Now he has infallibility is merely dealing with the teaching authority. It has nothing to do with the Pope's own personal sanctity or sinfulness. The Pope does not have the charism of impeccability, the inability to sin. So and we've seen this in church history where past popes, some have, have been, you know, downright horrible, evil sinners. Uh, we've had a, a number of three dozen or so 
uh, as holy saints, and the rest were pretty good guys, okay? But we had some really bad rascals in there. Um, you know, if you look at church history, uh, that doesn't violate papal infallibility because even, even the sinful evil ones, all right, who had children outside of marriage, they did not impose a false teaching on any of the faithful. And that's a sign of the Holy Spirit because Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail. Well, that authority that's given uh, in, in Matthew, in his gospel to Jesus, from Jesus to Peter, uh, has no restrictions in terms of whatever is whatever. Uh, it's not limited. So if the Pope uh, declares something uh, binding in conscience, uh, on, in faith and morals, uh, we have to accept that. But that doesn't in, in, entail everything that he says and does. Who he likes in a soccer tournament, you know, when Pope Benedict was Pope and Italy played Germany, everybody was wondering, who's he rooting for? Uh, one, it doesn't matter, but two, he put both flags outside his window. I saw it. <laughs> Tracy writes in, if God made Mary free from original sin, why is it significant that Mary experienced an immaculate conception? Why didn't he just do the same thing for Jesus? <laughs> well, Mary was free from sin because of the immaculate conception. Uh, it's not um, post hoc ergo propter hoc. It's the fact that the reason why we can say she's free from uh, all sin, original sin and actual sin, is because of the Immaculate Conception, which is a gift from God to her. Uh, nothing that she earned. This was a free gift. But it enabled her then, as someone who's free from sin, to give Jesus uh, a sinless uh, human nature. And, you know, some theologians argued, as is implied in the question, well, what if, couldn't they just prevent Jesus from being born original sin. It's not just being that he was born without original sin or that he that wasn't conceived in original sin. The fact that his human nature came from his mother. Uh, her DNA determined his DNA uh, in that sense. So gen all the genetic uh, material and that was uh, in Mary because there's no human father involved. So Mary determined her genes and DNA determined the color of his eyes, the shape of his nose, uh, his hair, everything else that uh, our mothers only contribute 50% of that. Our dads contribute the other 50. And Mary was 100%. Uh, and, but yet even in that, uh, our mothers don't contribute our immortal soul. That comes from God. Uh, and likewise with Mary, she gives Jesus his human nature, but his human soul, uh, that was created by God. Uh, he's one divine person. Uh, his divinity existed from all eternity. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. But if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag edition of Open Line Monday, all you have to do is send us an email. That email address is Monday. All one word. That's open line at EWTN.com. And put Father Tregilio or Open Line Monday in the subject line. And we'll make sure that that gets to the appropriate location. And also, if you'd like to leave a listener comment line question for us, there's a way that you can do that. If you call the regular studio line, which is 833 288 EWTN, that's 833-288-3986, after 4 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, then you at that time can leave a question 
for Father John Tregilio, and we can possibly work that into a uh, mailbag edition of Open Line Monday as well. Again, it's a very special open line, or uh, mailbag edition, rather, of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Back at it in just a minute with more emails for Father John here on Open Line. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Alexander says, Father John, that Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God with your whole mind and heart. Is it a mortal sin to not do this? If so, how can we ever be in a state of grace? <laughs> uh, well, there's many things uh, uh, we are asked and challenged to do by God. Um, the question of mortal sin is where uh, we have been negligent. And for instance, when he asks us to obey the commandments, uh, that's something that's it's a non-negotiable. Um, loving the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength, all our soul. It's what it's the commandment, but in terms of its application, um, all is very difficult uh, to, uh, to achieve. And if it's not for God's grace, we wouldn't be able to do even that. But we must try. We must try to keep the commandments. We must try to love God uh, totally, completely. Not 99 and 44 100s, but 100%. So as long as we're not uh, you know, cooperating in going the opposite direction, as long as we're not being negligent, as long as we're not uh, being lax or, uh, you know, too casual about this, uh, if it's not uh, some kind of, you know, sinful delinquency on our part. Uh, yes, it's true that, you know, uh, our degree of participation uh, can can fluctuate like the stock market. At the same time, culpably, I'm responsible for how hard am I trying as well as what am I producing. So if I'm staying in the state of grace, that's good. Uh, if I'm avoiding mortal sin, that's good. But am I growing in grace? Uh, am I increasing in sanctity and holiness? Uh, that's something I must also be aggressively pursuing and involved in. A special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. Bill writes in, does evil come from God since the serpent was made by God? <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, there's difference between God's ordained will and his permissive will. Uh, God do, does not and cannot create evil because evil is the rejection of God's will. And if I read something intentionally against his will, he would negate himself. Now, what God did was he, he created the angel Lucifer, who on his own free will became the devil, uh, the serpent. He created Adam and Eve in the state of innocence. They chose um, co to commit the first sin of, of, of disobedience. Uh, uh, Cain chose uh, to kill his brother Abel and so forth. So God does not create evil. He permits evil to exist because of free will and that he can also pull out a higher good even from the evil that's, that's uh, performed uh, by people so that 
sometimes when you see a horrible tragedy, we also see the best of humanity. At the same time, we see the worst, you know, when there's not not just a natural disaster, but even like, say, during the horrors of, of World War II, uh, there was the horrible e evil done by by uh, the Nazis, uh, especially uh, to the Jewish people and, and other uh, victims uh, during the war. But we also saw a lot of good being done by other people uh, in response to that. So that it's God did not say, oh, let's have the, you know, the Holocaust, but he permits evil because uh, evil was a free choice done by some people, but also it challenges the good to step up to the plate and do better. Chad writes in, how do we as Catholics approach praying to the saints that avoids defying them? That, excuse me, that avoids deifying them. Ah, well, the only way that they can be deified is if we actually treat them as divine. Uh, if we treat them as what they truly are, they're friends of God, uh, they're his servants, um, and that we are asking for their assistance. They're intercessors. They go to the one mediator. If I say and treat them as if I don't need Jesus, I just need them, that would be wrong. But if I see them in their true context, that these are messengers, uh, these are people who are already friends of God in the best sense, because a saint is someone in heaven. So they've made it. You know, they've gone through their trials and tribulations. They overcame their weaknesses and, and frailties by God's grace. So I have a connection to them because they are and were one of us. Uh, that's not uh, worshiping or adoring them. Uh, I have uh, compatibility with family members. That doesn't mean I don't treat other people with the same love and respect. But there's an affinity I have to people I know because we're related or that they're my friends, they're people I grew up with, people I work with, uh, I live near. And likewise with the saints, there's an affinity uh, that we have because we're fellow human beings. And as long as we make that wonderful, important distinction that I'm not worshiping or adoring them, but what I'm doing is I'm honoring them, I'm venerating them, and I'm merely asking for their intercession, and also I'm using their good example to lead me in the same direction of getting closer to Christ, then there's no problem. I have, I know some people misinterpret some people's uh, devotion to the saints as being some kind of, uh, you know, uh, div div uh, divinizing uh, human beings. But when you scratch beneath the surface, you see that's not the case. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. Ricky would like to know, why did it take until the 1800s to confirm the dogma of the Immaculate Conception? Well, uh, that's a good question. Uh, although the, the dogma was not solemnly defined in, until uh, uh, 1858, uh, uh, I believe, uh, or 1854, um, the point is that it was considered church teaching. It was not an ex cathedra uh, uh, statement of the Pope until Pius IX declared that. Up to that point, it was church teaching. And even, you know, those who were trying to say that Thomas Aquinas was against it, uh, he was not formally against it. He was having some uh, uh, concerns on how to explain this because he was using human biology that was based on Aristotle which was not completely accurate. I mean, Aristotle did not have the advantage of 
what people do have today in terms of, uh, you know, what we know because of microscopes, what we know because of modern science. Uh, we know that, uh, you know, when the sperm fertilizes the egg and it becomes an embryo, that the DNA at that very moment is distinct from the mother. Thomas Aquinas didn't know that because they didn't know, they knew how people had children, but they didn't know all, all the details, okay, of the, uh, the process that was uh, uh, beyond the human eyesight. So that being the case, the church never denied the, the Immaculate Conception. Uh, it just was not formalized as a dogma, but it was, it was a doctrine, it was teaching consistently. Okay, so the church didn't change her mind. It just solidified something that it had maintained. Elliot says, I read James 1, verse 17, and it says that God, quote, has no shadow of change, unquote, but frequently the Old Testament, but frequently in the Old Testament, he changes his mind about punishing the Israelites. How do you explain this supposed contradiction? Well, James talking from a philosophical, theological standpoint uh, in the Old Testament, this is the perception of the Hebrew people, okay? Uh, God seems to uh, change his, his position. It's not God who changes. It was the Hebrew people who changed. You know, they were unfaithful. God was never unfaithful. They were the ones. God said, I will be your God if you will be my people. The covenant was a two-sided uh, agreement. Uh, God would remain faithful, and then those people would remain. They're the ones involved in Baal worship. They're the ones who, uh, you know, misbehaved. They're the ones who wanted a king rather than, you know, having God as their king. Uh, so, what changed was not God; it was them. But it was their perception that God was the one who. Uh, whenever he punished them or whenever he did this or did that, uh, he was the one who was flip-flopping. No, it was they are the ones. We, as human beings, are the ones who can change and who do change. God is eternal, and there's no path, a possibility of him changing, especially when you look at it from the philosophical standpoint. You know, he's the prime mover. He's the uncaused cause. He's a necessary being. You know, St. Thomas shows in his Quinque Via in, in the Summa Theologica, you know, change means that, you know, you're you're not complete, you know, that there's uh, when you, if, if you're perfect, there's no possibility of change. You've already attained that perfection. And that's what God is. Um, Brian wants to know if it's possible for God to not love us. Is he capable of that? Uh, no, because we're made in his image and likeness. So how could he not love what, what he created? How could he not love what he sees in us? That being said, it doesn't mean, you know, when you love someone that you overlook the thing, bad things that they do, especially when the bad things they do uh, are not just directed against your will, but they're also hurtful and harmful to the person doing them. Uh, it's like a father and mother loving their child, but their child insists on uh, a destructive lifestyle, you know, that they're going to get into drugs and alcohol and sex and all kinds of, of bad things. They never stop loving their kid but they certainly don't love and approve of their bad behavior. Um, Todd has sent us an email, and he wants to know, when Christ institutes the sacrament of penance, what does it mean when he says, whoever's sins you retain, they are retained? 
Uh, that literally means that if someone goes to confession and the priest says, I'm sorry, I cannot absolve you, that means your sins are not absolved. Now, that is a very, very serious and as I teach the guys in the seminary, as my brother priests do here at the seminary, uh, you know, you only do that in the most dire a situation. If the person says, I committed adultery, but I'm not sorry, um, I, I say, well, I can't absolve you then. You, you, you must be sorry for what you've done. Now, can they give me metaphysical certitude that they're never going to do this again? No. What I'm expecting and asking from them is that they're going to at least try. I have to say, to them, are you going to try to stop this? Are you going to try to do better? Are you going to try to avoid this? That's all I need as the confessor. But if I hear from them that they manifested this, I did this, I murdered someone, I had an abortion, I would do it again. Uh, I have no, no remorse. Well, I'm, you're, my hands are tied now. I cannot absolve you. Okay, uh, it's not that I whether I like the person or not. Uh, even if they had done me personally, they themselves determine if. But if the priest says I'm unable to absolve you, uh, which is very serious, the person needs to say to themselves, "How do I change that situation?" And the response will be very easy. You need to be sorry. And you need some firm purpose of amendment. It's not enough to say, yeah, I'm sorry I got caught. I need to be, I'm sorry that I did it. And part of my contrition is that not only will I not do it again, but if I had to do it over again, I would do it differently. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday, not taking any phone calls today. Uh, Jason has sent us some correspondence here wanting to know, why would the devil prompt Judas to turn against Jesus? Jesus' death saved us. Well, that's a, a great mystery. I mean, we don't know what Judas's angle was, and people have speculated this for centuries. Some say, well, you know, he was merely political. Uh, John gives us a different uh, connotation because, uh, as we read in John's Gospel, uh, Judas was known to be a thief. Uh, he was dipping into the till. And uh, so uh, it seems that, you know, there's more uh, nefarious uh, motives in here. Um, but Judas made a free will choice, whether he fooled himself or not. Because, you know, <clears throat> the issue here is that he did betray him. Why he betrayed him is certainly a, a component but the fact is, he betrayed him. Uh, you could, the ends never justifies the means. So even if Judas thought, well, if, if we put him in this situation, uh, he would uh, manifest his divinity. Doesn't matter. He betrayed him. Uh, whether he betrayed him because he got, he got paid for it, which is horrible, or that he, he thought that something good would come from it, it's still wrong. So we have to look at what Judas did uh, and that he didn't even repent afterwards as far as we know he may have uh privately but as far as we know you know after he killed jesus uh, had him killed he he then hanged himself so uh we don't need to feel sorry for judas but we can say there may be multiple layers or levels of what was going on in his mind but objectively speaking it's what he did that's the worst thing what about the angle of the devil himself? Why would he prompt Judas to do something that led to his ultimate demise, he being the devil? Well, the devil's always, I mean, everything the devil wants is to our demise, because his ultimate goal is to keep us from heaven, and that's the worst thing that can happen to us. So uh, whether he accomplishes it or not, uh, he tempted Adam and Eve, 
uh, he tempted uh, Judas, he attempted, he tempts all of us, and when we give in, it's not that he's saying, aha, now you're on my side, it's like, I'm taken more away from God. So his hubris, his pride is so huge that even one lost soul uh, is to his credit. Edgar writes in, I read recently that there are some laws that require priests to break the seal of confession. What should priests do, and how will this continue to change the sacrament? Well, it won't change the sacrament, uh, in essence, because we priests must be willing uh, uh, to go to jail or even be executed uh, or tortured, uh, rather than divulge the, the, the seal of confession. Uh, and the fact that in 2,000 years, there's not one reported case, or at least any public uh, documentation on a priest, even the bad priests, even the worst of the worst, the, the pedophile perverts uh, who did horrible things, uh, even after they've been thrown out of the priesthood, none of them have revealed what was in the sacrament. Doesn't mean that the evil that they did wasn't serious, and it certainly was, and they're going to be punished for it. But the fact that the Holy Spirit still protects the sanctity uh, of the seal. Now, I know uh, in, in Australia, there's been moves to uh, send priests to jail. Uh, we've had this here in the United States. Um, I advocate, and so does the Confraternity Catholic clergy that I belong to, uh, you know, the best way to avoid all this is anonymous confession. Because if somebody comes to me confession and I can't see them, I can't, even if I could, I wouldn't be morally, uh, physically able to tell you who it was because I'm not good at recognizing voices. Someone comes in there, I can't see them. I wouldn't be able to go in court and say, yes, it was, uh, you know, uh, Joe Balducci, because my hearing is, I, I got I got my dad's hearing, okay? Uh, so if I don't see the face, and even then, I you know, I'm good at faces, I'm not good at names. So if I have somebody behind the screen and it's a fixed grill, one, no one can accuse me of, of solicitation, and two, I'm not gonna know and remember who that person is. If I'm going face to face, you know, there's where, uh, you know, the, the problem is. But even with that, I'm not allowed to say what people said. I can't tell you who went to me. I can't tell you what they said. And I can't act on that information. So if someone comes in and says, you know, I, I cut your brake cables, you know, I can't say, oh, I got to take my car now to the garage. All right. I cannot act on anything I know uh, in that in that sacrament even if it means me going to jail or worse. I hope Joe Balducci is not listening to the show today. <laughs> I want to tell you about the Dr. J Show. The Dr. J Show podcast with Dr. Jennifer Roback morris features some of the foremost leaders and thinkers on issues related to marriage, family, and human sexuality. You can hear the Dr. J Show, as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates around the world, all in one place, and they're all free. Simply log on to EWTN's Podcast Central at EWTN.com slash radio and then click on Podcast Central. Eight, uh, I'm giving the phone number. I almost got through the entire episode, almost, almost. without giving almost. the phone number, but this is a spe special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we are not taking your phone calls today. Samantha writes in, are there degrees of holiness or rewards in heaven? Uh, well, that's the, the common uh, 
perception. Uh, I, I think it makes sense. You know, St. Uh, Therese, uh, St. Teresa, St. John of the Cross, many others have spoken about the, the different levels or degrees of, of, of sanctity. Um, you know, it's, it's like uh, a balloon. The more air you put into it, the bigger it gets. And the more grace that we cooperate and accept, the more grace we're capable of receiving. So it's to our advantage to not just say, I just want the bare minimum enough to get into heaven. I want as much as possible. It's like a person on life support is alive, but wouldn't it be better that rather than just being alive because they've got an IV and they're on, on a machine, they can't get out of bed, would it be better that they have the fullness of life and they're able to walk around, eat what they want, uh, and not be restricted because they're not on life support? In the spiritual life, it's all this, it's just equally true that it's, I should not be content with just getting in. I should want to be as, uh, get to the highest level that I'm capable of because that is part of God's plan. Shelley would like to know how can someone recognize spiritual warfare? Well, uh, first that you can recognize is that uh, there's nothing like supernatural to begin with. The, the, the first thing is you can detect when you see or hear or, or know that what's being proposed, an action or a, a, a thought, uh, an ideology that opposes the will of God. It goes against uh, the natural law. It goes against the Ten Commandments. It goes against divine revelation. If, first of all, I detect that there is uh, an action or uh, an ideology, uh, a mentality that opposes God's will, that's a sign of spiritual warfare. The fact that good people are being uh, persecuted, the fact that weak people are being exploited, the fact that innocent people are being oppressed, uh, these are all signs of spiritual warfare because uh, the devil, uh, and remember there's three sources of, of evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and that all three uh, you know, can uh, seek our ruin uh, and they will uh, do this at different levels, at different times, in different degrees. The warfare is not constantly at the same uh, pace any more than it was during World War II. I remember when my dad was telling me and my brother's stories about when he was in the Navy uh, in World War II in Korea. You know, uh, the battles come and go. There's successes, there's failures, there's times of retreat, there's times of advance. Uh, it wasn't a constant movement. There was a lull so to speak. And that's the way it is in the spiritual warfare. Uh, there'll be a, a, a period of, of calm and then a period of, of battlement. But we have to be prepared and always uh, be fighting on the right side, uh, and that is uh, promoting the will of God. Uh, Aaron asks, in 1 Timothy it says there is only one mediator and that he is Jesus Christ. Why do we pray to Our Lady? Because she's because she knows the mediator. <laughs> I mean, she is his mother. That doesn't make her uh, a mediator. Uh, she is the intercessor par excellence. Even when we give her the title mediatrix, it's because Jesus is allowing her uh, to perform that function, and she still needs him uh, to accomplish that. So uh, she's not an alternative. It's not like Jesus is A and she's B. Okay, uh, it's like the difference between a pilot and a co-pilot. Uh, when we use the term co-redemptrix with Mary, 
the, the pilot is the one flying the plane, the co-pilot assists. Uh, the pilot could still fly the plane by himself, but the co-pilot is there because sometimes the pilot wants that uh, help or assistance, uh, not that he needs it. And likewise, Jesus wants to use Our Lady. Uh, it's his mother. Uh, it's someone that, you know, at the wedding feast of Cana, in his divinity, he would have known that they ran out of wine. In his humanity, he allowed his mother to make the request. Uh, that's something that he chose to do. Why did he have 12 apostles? He didn't need 12 apostles. He chose to have 12 apostles. He didn't have to have seven sacraments. He chose to establish seven sacraments. He didn't need to have sacred scripture, the Bible, but he chose uh, to have his uh, his revelation come to us through sacred scripture and sacred tradition. So Our Lady's not there by necessity. She's there by God's divine choice. And in our final, <clears throat> excuse me, in our final 90 seconds or so, Daniel wants to know, does it matter if we call priests reverend or pastor or father? What's the difference? Well, I mean, legally we sign our checks in that reverend, but father is also now legally acceptable. Spiritually, I'm a father uh, because, you know, the, the children I baptize I have a special relationship to um, my fatherhood is because of the fact that I act in persona Christi. Um, it's not diminishing in any way, shape or form the fatherhood of God any more than my dad, my father, because scripture says, call no one on earth your father. I still call my dad my father, and I did so with pride and respect. So I, as a priest, have no problem with that term. Uh, whether someone calls me reverend, pastor, parson, preacher, it doesn't bother me, but I prefer to be called Father because that's the most sublime title. Father John, would you leave us with a blessing? Benedicta vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, and our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to this special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Back at it tomorrow with Father Wade on Open Line Tuesday, talking faith, family, and fellowship. Until we get together then, God bless.